Good morning and welcome back to the morning briefing. We are here at episode number 187, believe it or not. That leaves us just 13 weeks away from hitting the magic 200 mark. Who would have ever thought that beginning at the COVID, beginning uh, with the start of the COVID pandemic that we'd be here uh, almost 200 episodes later, but yet here we are. Well, let me say that. Let me adjust that a little bit. I say we, uh, I'm here today. Phil, of course, is missing uh, once again from the program, but I'm here to pick up the slack along with our dedicated producer, Nick, who's here to help me get through today's program. Nick, welcome back to the program. How are you today? I'm doing excellent. And I had all the faith in the world that we were going to make it 200, 300, 400, 500 episodes. Let's do it. All right. There's well, enough to talk the- about. I'll tell you that. That is for sure. Let's get to 200 before we move on too quickly. So uh, I'm excited about today's program. We have a very special guest joining us on the program today. We gave everybody a little bit of a preview of the program last week and uh, in the promotional materials that went out. One of my colleagues, one of my law partners from our uh, Nashville office, Luther Wright, is joining us. And I mentioned to folks on the program that last week I also had the opportunity to present an ethics seminar uh, on the rules of professional conduct to Missouri lawyers who were scrambling at the last uh, minute, actually the last two days, to get their ethics credit in for the year. And so we put on a program uh, to get them, get people their two hours of ethics credit. And also Missouri requires a one hour program uh, every year on the topic of uh, bias, diversity, uh, equity, and inclusion. And so Luther presented that one hour of the program. One of my colleagues from Kansas City, Mike Matula, and I presented the other two hours of the program. And it was fascinating listening to Luther's part of the presentation. And uh, while I've presented on the topic of diversity, equity, and inclusion before, uh, Luther obviously brings a different perspective to this because he focuses most of a large chunk of his practice in this area. So Luther, welcome to the program. We're happy to have you today. And also, also, before you jump in, let me let the listeners know, Luther's out on West Coast time right now. So that makes it, I think, uh, five something, 5.33 a.m. out there. So Luther, thank you very much for joining us today. Why don't you let people on the program know a little bit about your background? No, thanks for having me. Uh, and I apologize if you hear some music in the background. I'm at a resort, and the only place for me to get Wi-Fi is in this lobby area. Now, uh, now, wait, now, now, now wait a minute. I just tried to get you some sympathy out there that you were up at 5.30 in the morning participating on this program, but now you're telling everybody you're at a resort. Yeah, well, you know. I'm just giving you all the facts so all right. that you know what's going on. Uh, no, so I'm, I'm, I'm hanging out with the family uh, post uh, July 4th, uh, but I never miss an opportunity uh, to talk about what I think is one of the most important topics of our times in terms of us uh, really understanding uh, how we get along with each other, or at least how we need to get along with each other uh, in society in general, but also uh, in the workplace. Uh, and that's been uh, a big part of my practice for the past 27 years. But I started off as a general litigator, quickly changed uh, into the employment arena about two years into my practice. Uh, and shortly thereafter, really started tackling some of these issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion before we even called it that. Uh, I think, at least from my perspective, uh, how we treat each other in the workplace 
uh, and the level of understanding that we have of folks who might be different from us culturally uh, or gender-wise or national origin or religion-wise uh, is very important to us having a productive workplace. Uh, and so that's been a big part of my work for the past 27 years. Uh, it is my privilege to be here today, uh, even at five something in the morning on West Coast time. Well, thanks for that, Luther. And thanks for giving a little bit of background uh, about your practice. It just so happens, uh, it's, it's really interesting. Luther and I, we're not going to share exactly the number, although most people know on the program uh, that, that, that I'm, I'm just slightly north of 50. Uh, and uh, Luther and I happen to be at the same uh, point in our career, same age, uh, probably similar time uh, at the family stage of our lives. And, and here we are together, really at the same point. Uh, everybody can obviously free, see from the screen that Luther and I are of different racial backgrounds, and, and yet we've ended up largely at the, at the same spot uh, as one another. And uh, so, so there's a lot of commonalities that Luther and I have with one another, but obviously one commonality we don't have is our race. And it's obviously obvious for folks to see from the images on the screen that we are of different racial backgrounds. And uh, you know, I, I grew up at an age where, uh, you know, I, I, I think that the, the goal and what we were taught and educated, at least in my schools, was that uh, race shouldn't play a factor in any uh, decision making. Race, you, people really should be uh, blind to race, that we should be following the, the, the moniker of Martin Luther King, and I probably butchered the quote, at least the front end of it almost every single time, but uh, Martin Luther King uh, aspired to get to a point in society where people would be judged not by the color, or be judged by the content of their character, not by the uh, color of their skin. And uh, Luther brings a, a little bit different perspective to me because we, the, Luther pointed out to me when we were talking uh, about planning this program, that that was just one voice of the civil rights movement. And there were other uh, competing voices who did not necessarily agree uh, with that, uh, that, that presentation by Martin Luther King or that comment by Martin Luther King. And I think those voices have grown louder over recent years. One thing I wanna do real quickly is introduce our poll question. I know a lot of people are responding quickly to this, but compared to before the 9-11 attack, race relations today are generally, and there's five choices for you. They're much better, uh, somewhat better, about the same, uh, somewhat worse, and way worse. And so hopefully people can uh, put their responses into the poll and uh, we will talk about the, the uh, poll results as we move through the program. I also recommend that uh, we do have the comment box open as well, too. If you want to give us a little more light into your thoughts on that, feel free to enter that in the box. Thank you, Nick. I appreciate that. And, and I know Luther likes to have interaction and comments and everything. So please, please use the chat feature of, the, uh, of, of Zoom here today so we can get those comments rolling in. Uh, so Luther, let me let me toss it back to you. Uh, I, I gave a, a little uh, snippet of, of one of Martin Luther King's famous speeches, a famous quote from Martin Luther King. Can you maybe provide a little bit of background on sort of the other competing voices that were out there at the time that maybe didn't get as much attention that maybe today are getting more attention and why it's not necessarily uh, everyone's goal that we get to a point in society where 
uh, where, where people are colorblind, why that's considered to be uh, maybe offensive or a microaggression. No, and I think you set the table nicely for that conversation. Uh, and I think one of the reasons that it's important for us uh, to, to learn all aspects of history is so that we understand uh, the difference in perspectives. We have a tendency sometimes to look back, particularly at a period of time, and say, well, this is how uh, every single person of this particular persuasion thought. Uh, and the concern, even in the civil rights movement, and there are a lot of uh, civil rights leaders as they've gotten older, who've regretted that notion of colorblindness from the perspective of, right, it's not consistent with how we are as humans. We notice those differences. Uh, and what's happened, at least from the perspective of some scholars, is this notion of colorblindness has been used uh, as a way to further uh, perpetuate racism and discrimination, because at the end of the day, uh, all of us are aware of differences, right? I think we're being disingenuous sometimes. If I look at a person and I say, I don't notice uh, a, a difference in uh, uh, gender uh, or race. And the idea, although aspirationally great, is inconsistent with human nature. The reality is that we, and this is one of the competing voices, was look, folks need to learn how to appreciate uh, each individual. It's the uh, sometimes referred to, you know, as a set of the melting pot, you know, it's the, it's the salad bowl. Like they're all unique and different flavors. We don't just meld into uh, this one sort of uh, hard to distinguish group of individuals. Instead, we each have our own uh, individual flavors uh, that we add uh, to this American experience. Uh, and so the competing voice was, hey, you know, if we talk about this notion of colorblindness, uh, it's very easy then for us to use something else as a proxy for discrimination, as opposed to us acknowledging that there are those differences there, appreciating those differences, utilizing those differences, particularly in the workplace, uh, and understanding that the dichotomy or differences in perspectives uh, actually is helpful. And so this uh, idea of colorblindness, uh, while a lofty notion, uh, is something that we simply uh, will never, ever truly be able to uh, obtain. And many folks have believed that we shouldn't. Uh, in that same civil rights period, you also saw sort of the what's usually referred to as the Black Power Movement, uh, where folks were learning how to celebrate who they were, uh, appreciate those differences, uh, and ask that they be treated uh, in a respectful fashion, uh, and also acknowledging the differences in culture and heritage. So that's always been a tension in terms of what the goal is at the end of the day. Do I need you to totally forget or, or try to tell yourself that you've forgotten that we're different racially? Uh, or do I say, you know what? doesn't really matter to me that you're a different race. I'm going to appreciate that and, and at some level respect that. And so that's what the tension has always been, although we don't really talk about it as much uh, as we have looked at that colorblind notion. Uh, and, and what happens a lot of times, you mentioned this notion of a microaggression. Uh, one of the things that I talk about is this idea uh, of when we say to people, right, I, I don't see color, I only see people. 
uh, I tell folks that that is usually demonstrably false because typically, at least in my experience, and, and you were alluding to the fact that we're just a tad bit over 50 uh, <laughs> and, and I'm certainly there. I, I've only heard people say that in situations where they were talking to someone who's a different race. And I always tell folks that it comes across as a microaggression because it's usually demonstrably false uh, because we only say it when we're confronted with someone who is of a different race. And in my 50 some odd years on this earth, I've never heard, for example, uh, an African-American person say to another African-American person, I don't see race, I only see people, or I don't see color, I only see people. I've never heard anybody of the same uh, race or color say that to someone else. Uh, and, and that's how we get into that microaggression kind of space. It's something that we say habitually, thinking that it's an icebreaker. But a lot of times it's usually something that causes greater concern uh, and, and suggests that perhaps this person is trying to uh, at least give the impression that race or color is irrelevant uh, because at some level it probably does matter to them. So, so I think you made a, a really interesting point there. And, uh, you know, I, well, first of all, I, it, only in the context of having discussions with other uh, white people, have I ever used the comment or heard the comment uh, that I don't, I don't see color. Uh, in, in, in the context of having a discussion about race uh, is, is the only time that's ever come up. So I think, I think you're right. Um, I don't recall that I've ever said it uh, to, to a Black person that uh, I don't see race. I don't think I've ever gone to that uh, level, but one one thing that you just uh, brought up that's really important is um, the the difference between not seeing race, someone stating that they don't see race or they don't see color, and making it and you used a very specific term here, making the race irrelevant. And I think that's that's the the distinction there is that uh, by by saying that you you don't see color it sort of dismisses or makes the other person's race irrelevant. And while the, the goal may be aspirational, that, you, that an individual wants to make decisions about other folks or uh, you know, decide how to interact with other folks based on things other than the race, uh, we shouldn't make the race irrelevant. Uh, and, and I think that that's an important distinction. Can you flush that out a little bit more for us? Yeah, so I think to your point, in those situations uh, where I have had someone uh, say, and I, and I usually tell this story in my training, uh, that I was at an event, I met a guy, we had a very lovely conversation, we happened to be uh, of different races. And he said to me as we were about to part, he said, you know, uh, Luther, I'm the type of person, you know, when it when it comes to meeting folks, you know, I don't see color, I only see people. And so then I asked the question, I said, well, if that's true, then why are you telling me this in this moment? And he said, I don't understand the question. And I said, well, if you don't see my race, why was it important as we were partying? This is the first time we've ever met. Why was it important for you to tell me that you are the type of person who doesn't see race? And he said, well, I think you're taking my comment the wrong way. And I said, no, I'm, I said, I'm trying to make this sort of a, uh, a teaching moment uh, because I want you to understand how that comes across from someone who's on the receiving end. And I said, I think what you're trying to say to me is 
I mean, obviously I see that we're different races, but at the end of the day, uh, in terms of how I evaluate your character, you know, that stuff doesn't matter. He said, yeah, yeah. He said, that's exactly what I'm saying. And I said, yeah, but that's not what you said. And, and the goal uh, right here at the end of the day, and this is what I tell folks in my training sessions all the time, is that we should be intentional and understand that our words matter uh, and understand that sometimes, and this is the, the whole notion of unconscious bias, we're in the habit of saying some things without really thinking about how they land with the person on the receiving end. That's that difference between you know, having an empathetic ear and saying, hey, I understand what it feels like being in your shoes. And so when I'm communicating with you, I'm going to communicate with you with that in mind. Uh, and I think that's the point at, at the end of the day, right? In terms of, uh, of racial differences, obviously we see those. Uh, obviously we are aware of them, but our goal at the end of the day is for us to say, in terms of how we make decisions about people in terms of character or ability uh, or in terms of worthiness for promotion, right? Those things uh, are an acknowledged difference, but they are not the points which make a difference in terms of how uh, we evaluate people. And so it becomes one of those things where, at least from my perspective, the, the fact that we have some differences becomes something that is uh, gives us the ability uh, to utilize the distinctions amongst people, whatever they may be, uh, without using it as a detriment to that person because of some preconceived notions uh, or other ideas about them based on uh, some demographics. So Luther, let me ask you a question. I mean, it sounds like what you're saying to me is, is that uh, at least in the employment context and as you and I both being management side labor and employment lawyers, uh, that, that, there, there's a fine line here that the decisions uh, about promotions and opportunities in the workplace uh, that for the most part, those decisions need to be based on the people's, the, the individual's uh, quality, uh, their, their work product, their ability, et cetera. But we also need to take into account and appreciate different uh, backgrounds that, that folks bring to the table in any particular situation. And, and that's a relevant piece of the decision-making. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah, I think it's accurate in terms of what I advocate for at the end of the day. It's a holistic view of what this particular candidate or what this particular person uh, brings to the table uh, in terms of their uh, life experiences. Uh, and when I say life experiences, that encompasses education, uh, perspective, uh, experiences, uh, and all of that. And, and the reason that I emphasize it and say it that way uh, is that we've had too long of a period, I think, in our history uh, where one factor was used as a reason not to put a person in that particular situation, right? Those things have, uh, have, have happened to me throughout my career, uh, fortunately not at our current firm, uh, but in other places where folks are like, well, I don't want to put you in this position because I don't think uh, you're going to be able to do a good job because of uh, your race or because of this uh, particular uh, background or experience. And, and when I say background or experience, uh, I mean things like socioeconomic background. Uh, and, and, and to put a finer point on it, you know, early in my career, uh, and I think I talked about this in the training session that you were mentioning earlier, uh, I had an opportunity to work on uh, 
a case involving country music. And there was this presumption that because I was African-American, I wouldn't connect with the subject matter. Well, as it turns out, and this is the thing that I advocate for, uh, I'm actually a huge country music fan. I mean, I'm from Nashville, Tennessee, and I grew up uh, watching uh, one of my favorite programs, which is Hee Haw. I'm an old school country music fan, but a presumption was made based on the fact that, oh, I think most uh, Blacks or African-Americans uh, don't connect with country music. And so they never asked the question to really fully utilize uh, their expertise. And as it turns out, I was more connected and a bigger fan of the music than any other attorney uh, in our law firm. Uh, but those presumptions and assumptions were made uh, based on limited information. And so I think that's the fine line that we have to walk at the end of the day is one, not making assumptions or presumptions about people based on limited information. And also realizing at the end of the day that our sum total of experiences are the things that really help us uh, in, in terms of trying to figure out who might put our organization uh, in the best possible position to handle this matter in an effective way. So and, and so that's the journey for us at the end of the day. Thanks for that, Luther. And so let me ask you a, a, a really difficult question. And obviously, uh, most of the participants on the program are either in an executive level at their organizations, HR, uh, and, 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 and maybe an officer level, owners of organizations. Um, and one of the, the, the hard issues, especially somebody of, of, of my background, the white, white background, is the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was, was obviously born out of the civil rights movement and the time where Martin Luther King was probably the most prominent uh, figure on uh, the civil rights scene at that time. And Title VII of the uh, Civil Rights Act of 1964 basically says that, that uh, as far as equal opportunity, equal employment opportunity, that decisions uh, companies must make their decisions without regard to uh, race, national origin, religion, uh, et cetera, and gender, uh, and you know those 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 types of protected categories that we always talk about on the program. And so, it's it's told to us in the law itself that we should not be using. Uh, race as race among other protected uh, characteristics, but race as a uh, decision-making point. And so now it sounds like, you know, how, how it creates confusion and, and how are we to comply with the law on one hand, yet uh, say that race should be included on, in decision-making on the other hand. No, and, and, I, and, and I think that's a fair question at the end of the day. And I think part of the confusion to the extent there is confusion uh, is sort of our inability to kind of talk about uh, uh, issues and, and having a comfort level when we're talking about those particular issues, right? So what I say to folks at the end of the day in the classic DE and I sense uh, that you should never have a situation where a person's race, gender, national origin or other protected class uh, is a determining factor uh, in any type of employment decision. Uh, but in the context of diversity, equity, and inclusion, uh, having that be one of many factors in terms of trying to determine uh, how you're going to configure your workforce certainly matters. 
uh, and it's something that can be taken into consideration, but is not a determining factor. Uh, and that's what all of the literature and I think most of the experts in this area uh, will land when it comes to that. You should never, ever make a decision against a person based on uh, any of those protected categories. Uh, but in terms of particularly in, in our profession and thinking about uh, experiences uh, and thinking about uh, the, someone's connectedness with particular subject matter, uh, that's a factor to be considered, uh, but not a determining factor. Sure. Uh, and I think, and this is one of the things that I do sort of all across the country is making sure that people understand the distinction between EEO laws uh, affirmative action that's been ordered uh, as a result of, you know, proven discrimination, for example, where a particular industry or company is told, hey, you have discriminated in this area. And so now you have an affirmative duty to right that wrong, which is distinct, uh, distinguishable then from a diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, perspective where we're really looking to try to see what our organization looks like if we're meeting uh, the objectives of uh, our shareholders or whatever our particular uh, uh, goals are in terms of how we process uh, our particular uh, environment. And I think the, the problem where we get into the Title VII issue is when we make someone's protected class status a sole factor or a determining factor uh, in employment decisions, as you opposed brought, to one of many factors. You, you brought up a really important point. There are a lot of important points, but one that really stuck out to me is that the person's protected status should never, and this is uh, in, in, in the law, in order to comply with the law, it should never be used as a negative factor in decision-making. That is against the law. And I think that's one point that employers can take out of your and in, in my discussion today uh, is that the uh, the the fact uh, that that the person's protected status should never it would be illegal to use that as a negative in employment making decision. And then I think the other point that that employers can take away from this is that it is okay and maybe even a good idea to consider uh, the protected status depending on on the situation. Uh, on, on situational uh, issues. If you, and, and you shouldn't exclude people because of this, but there may be opportunities where uh, somebody who's in a protected status might be the perfect candidate for a particular uh, assignment or a particular uh, uh, type of work within an organization because of their background. Uh, and again, it's drawing that fine line. You mentioned the country music uh, case you worked on that it shouldn't be assumed that you don't like country music because whoever made that assumption about you, if they tried to put me on the case, they'd be absolutely wrong because I don't enjoy country music. In fact, a joke I heard was is that people who listen to country music, if you listen to the song backwards, you know what happens? The wife comes home, the person gets his job back and the dog comes back alive. So, you know, that's that's what I've heard about country music. I don't enjoy listening to it, but that it, it shouldn't be presumed uh, that that you aren't into into country music. Uh, it may be presumed that I would be into country music because it's situational. And then, uh, but but you shouldn't be denied the opportunity to work on something like that. And there may be cases. Uh, I'm getting ready to go to trial 
in in uh, uh, in September, uh, a couple months from now, and uh, with with one of our co colleagues, Mike Mitchell uh, from our Houston office, and uh, Mike is also. Uh, a, a black attorney also happens to be about our same age and everything. And this is a race case and it, Mike's leading the case and he and I are sort of co-first chairing the case, but it's a race case. And Mike, when he was looking for an attorney uh, to, to staff the case, he, he thought that a balanced approach, you know, to, to staff uh, the case from a jury perspective, that there's a, a black attorney and a white attorney on the case, that that's a perfectly uh, good mix of, of, uh, of, of racial uh, background for uh, a jury. And uh, so, so in that instance, uh, race is being taken into account, but it's being taken into account for important reasons related to a particular case. And so I think the, the upshot is, is what Luther is suggesting here, again, is that race should never be used as a, as a uh, determining factor. It shouldn't be used ever as a discounting factor uh, and should be used if it's in the context of can this person bring something to the table in the particular situation that's relevant here. I want to talk about a couple things. Wow, this half hour really, really flew. Uh, we barely got anywhere, Luther. We may have to ask you to come back again. Uh, but let me take a, a, a couple of uh, comments uh, in, in, in the chat. And, you know, I just want to point out how polarized people are. There's one person who commented, and I'm not going to attribute it to anyone. The previous administration encouraged the activities of hate groups, which further has, which has further divided us. And there's another comment on there that says, uh, how about the current administration talking about the next Supreme Court justice will be a black woman? And so, you know, you've got these 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 people who are polarized uh, that they see that the the current administration, the prior administration, the administration before that, and probably the administration before that, uh, which is basically why I picked 9/11 as sort of the time demarcator here, uh, because I think that the conversation around race really has become more vociferous. Uh, in the last 20 or so years. So that's nothing more than a time uh, demarcator to answer your question, Dave. Uh, but, but it really has become uh, more of a topic and people are all over uh, the, the fence on this. And that's a really good segue, Nick. Can you go over the poll results with our listeners? Absolutely. So the highest responses have been for way worse or somewhat worse on race relations. These are somewhat better and about the same. Okay, and do okay. we have any that say way better? No. Okay, interesting. So, Not way better. So, so in, in judging by my my terrible math skills. Remember, I'm a lawyer, not a not a mathematician here. I'm guessing that that looks to me to be about uh, 66 or two thirds of our our uh, viewers today are saying that race relations are either. Uh, somewhat worse or way worse compared to uh, 20, 22 years ago. And I think that that's a, a disturbing number. And I think that the, the point that Luther and I are trying to provide to people today is, look, Luther and I, Luther and I are, like I said before, we're at the, basically the same points in our lives and our careers here. We're at the same firm. And Luther and I are having a very uh, respectful discussion with one another about these issues, very factual, uh, very matter of fact. 
And I think that that really does bring up a couple of things that we want to leave uh, our, our viewers with today. And the, the question really becomes, um, you know, how do you overcome these barriers? And Luther and I talked about this ahead of the program today. And the first piece is leadership. And I know we're going over by just a couple minutes. Please bear with us. We want to be respectful of everyone's time. But the first point is leadership. And so, Luther, what does that leadership look like in this space? What can employers do to effectively lead to get these conversations on the table uh, so that uh, certain so so that it's not so uh, doom and gloom out there with respect to race relations? How can we lead? Yeah, one of the things that I talk about a lot is this notion of inclusive leadership. Uh, and I know we're running short on time, so I'll just give you uh, kind of the 30-second uh, version of what that means, right? We lead by example, uh, and, and we uh, attack difficult subjects head on. The reality is, is demonstrated in what folks have said about the you know, current administration and the past administration, for example. The reality is, regardless of what viewpoint you're coming from, we're very uncomfortable having this conversation. Uh, oh, and it doesn't matter what your perspective is. And as a leader, you've got to create an environment where we become more comfortable talking about those issues because it's impacting us. Uh, I think the poll demonstrates that, man. It's impacting us and how we think about it. And, and real leadership in this moment is for us to sit down, to have respectful conversations, where, like you just said, to say, let's walk through and talk through these issues. That requires intentionality, and it requires leaders to lead that conversation uh, and uh, to, to model that behavior. To, to say we're going to attack, not invalidate people's perspectives. We're going to have a real conversation about these issues uh, and, and not allow this to turn into a situation that starts to derail our organization. Uh, so that kind of leadership, uh, that intentionality uh, of attacking this issue like we would any other problem that our company is having in a very strategic uh, and intentional fashion. So Luther, I, I, I really appreciate that. And, and I think that uh, one of the things that, that people within their organizations can do, if they're serious about uh, dealing with these issues, you need to have people within your organization come together in a smaller group first and sort of brainstorm, how are we going to handle these issues? Obviously in that situation, it's not going to work. You're not going to get employee buy-in if you've got five white males sitting around a table brainstorming about how they're going to uh, tackle the issue of race relations in the company. You need to have that particular group. And I think that's what Luther was saying before, is that in that particular employment context, it is important to consider the racial makeup and the makeup of, of a group uh, that's going to be dealing with race within your organization. Uh, Race should be considered a factor. It's not going to work for your organization if five white males make up this group and then create a diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, solution for the company. You've got, in order to get buy-in from your employees, that group has to be reflective of what the workforce really is. And uh, that's one of those situational pieces and where, where you can... Uh, you, you know, to use Luther's word, have that intentionality of trying to, to address this problem. So I know we're over by about uh, five minutes here. I'm going to invite Luther back to the program. It's been a fascinating discussion. A half hour is nowhere near enough time 
uh, for Luther and I to really sort of get into some of the meat of these issues. Uh, but I really do appreciate Luther's time. Luther, go enjoy your vacation. Go enjoy enjoy your family. Thank you so much for waking up early and spending time with uh, all of us folks in the Midwest here today. No, thanks for having me and happy to do it. And I'll be happy to do it again. I think all this right, is an Luther. important conversation. Thank you, Luther. And we will see you next week for episode number 188. Tell your story, promote your products, communicate with your employees and customers vividly, dynamically, and powerfully. Whether it's a company video, recruitment video, online training, or live meeting, Feature Group can help you from scripting to highly polished finished production. Whether it's live or on demand, we have the skills and equipment to wow your audience and drive your message home. Feature Group USA. The one-stop shop for all your broadcasting needs. <laughs>